Hey, how are you guys? It's Friday night, it's Friday night. Yeah, all right, all right, I got oranges for all y'all. Here, let's do this. Ready, throw up your oranges, let's selfie it up together. Ready, here we go. Look your best, look your best. Come on, here we go, ready? We'll do like one of these, and one of these, and one of these. All right, there we go. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I know, I know you guys are probably flipping the bird in the back of this, right? Is that what's happening? Okay, here we go. There we go. All right, we're good, we're good, we're good. Sorry. I got you. Okay, ready? No, I'm not signing any for it. One more of those. Balcony. Okay. So let me say this. Uh, a couple of things before, uh, before we dive into our last session together. First of all, from me to you, thanks, right? Thanks. Thanks for taking this serious. Thanks for asking good questions. Thanks for coming to find me if you wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Thanks for, thanks for being willing to process together both uh, the things you affirm and the things that you have doubts about, your concerns, your questions. I feel like all week long, you guys, I've had rad questions with you. Remember uh, that, that God can stand up to your questions, that he's not scared of your doubts. He's not worried about the things. That, there isn't a thing you can dig into that all of a sudden God will be like, oh, no, you found out something I didn't want you to know. He is glorious, and he is the king of the universe, and, he, and, and he's ready for your questions, so bring them. This week has been fun. It's been fun to look at the truth of who Jesus is and to do that together. If you came up here this week as an individual, or if you came up, uh, if you came up maybe with a church, but you're not really part of that church, but they had like a space or whatever, and they let you come, I'm really glad you're here, but let me tell you what, like, uh, who are you processing some of this stuff with? If you're not part of a regular church group, it's a great idea to get plugged into a regular church group, because that's a cool place to show up and be like, hey, I don't understand this, or I don't understand that, or what, what does it mean when the Bible says this? Like, we, we're not meant to figure this thing out by ourselves. We're meant to figure this life out together in community. That's, that's how God created it. Remember, we talked all week about the fact that God created us at the beginning for oneness, oneness with him, and oneness with each other and the creation, right? And we live in a world that's very broken now, but because of Christ, we have the opportunity to experience oneness again. So don't isolate yourself. Uh, f find a community to be a part of. And if you're not part of a regular church, maybe the one you came up here with is a great place to get started, right? So thanks for, uh, thanks for being kind to my family and I. It's been really fun to be here. And um, if you're ever in Fullerton, you swing by the house and you can swim in my pool or whatever. It's fine. Don't really come to my house. Okay. Just kidding. Well, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You can come. So we finished last night. We finished last night with the resurrection of Christ. And we talked about the fact, and we just sang about the fact, that when Jesus walks out of the tomb, uh, he doesn't just prove that he has resurrection power, which would have been cool, but then by his grace, he extends to us resurrection life. And to those who believe, he makes us daughters and sons of God. To anyone who believes on his name, we are transformed. He gives us that same resurrection life. So the question tonight as we finish out the gospel of John, and I know we've moved fast, the question tonight is what do we do with this resurrection life? He gave us resurrection life, and is that it? Like now we're just, we're made alive, we ran out of the grave to where, right? We can sing a song about running out of the grave, and that's awesome, but we need to think about where it is we're going when we come out of that grave, right? Why did he give us resurrection life, and what's the point now? Where do we go? What do we do? Well, John, actually, continuing in this gospel is very instructive. So if you have a Bible, turn to John 20. 
It's weird to me, you would think that after Jesus rose from the dead and had revealed himself to several of the disciples, that it would just be like full-on party time, you know, like the way we were just singing, like shouting and dancing and high fives and whatever, like Jesus rose from the dead. You would think that the disciples following the resurrection of Christ would be stoked, like they would just be on like cloud nine, right? But that isn't what the Gospel of John describes. In fact, what the Gospel of John describes is that on the night of Easter, right, Easter evening, the night of Jesus' resurrection, after many of the disciples had seen him, on that night, we actually find the disciples locked in a room, scared of the world. Locked in a room, scared of the world. It's weird to me the way that fear sometimes moves us in weird directions, right? That fear sometimes gets us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. I, I don't know, some of you know this, I used to live at Hume Lake, and uh, when I lived here, I worked here for about nine years, I lived here, I was on staff, and uh, early on, when I first started coming up to Hume, uh, I was actually leading worship, like the band has done this week, I was leading worship in Ponderosa in 1997, and the summer of 1997... It's my first summer at Hume Lake. I'd never been here before because I grew up in Arizona. And uh, one night, we're hanging out, me and my wife and, and one of my friends and his wife were hanging out in the Ponderosa Lodge over there by, by the human beings, you know, or the Hume Coffee Co. And uh, we're in there. It's like 1130 at night or so. The campers have all gone to bed. And all of a sudden, one of the maintenance guys comes in to the lodge. We're just kind of sitting around. And he goes, hey, you guys want to see a bear? And I was like, heck yeah, because I, I grew up in Phoenix, I'd never seen a bear, right? He's like, come on, you guys, there's a bear outside. So we come outside onto the deck, right? So now you know where the, like, the clothing company is and the, the Ponderosa Lodge, and then just down that way, the dining hall's right there. Well, there used to be these big trash cans right there, and the bear had dumped over these trash cans, and he was just like kind of going through. It's like giant, it's, this bear was giant, and he's going through the trash. Well, the maintenance guy, he goes, we can't let this bear stay down here because if any of the Ponderosa campers come down to go to the bathroom in the night, we don't want them to run into a bear, so we got to get rid of it. And I was like, yeah, how are we going to get rid of it? So me and my friends, we're following this maintenance guy, and we, we get a little bit closer to the bear, but we're still like from me to like almost you know the other end of the deck, so almost the back of the room. And he goes, we got to make loud noise. So we're like, Hey, bear, you got to get out of here, right? That's all I knew what to do. I'm like, bear, get going. And uh, the bear didn't even look up. Like, the bear just keeps eating trash. So Bill, the maintenance guy, he goes, we got to get a little bit closer. So we get a little bit closer. And now it's like we're about as far from the bear as maybe like halfway back here in Ponderosa Chapel. And uh, we try to puff ourselves up a little bit, make ourselves big, you know, make ourselves seem big. And we're like, bear, you got to get out of here. You can't stay down here. You got to get going. So get up and go, bear. You got to go, right? And uh, the bear, this time the bear's eating trash. And this time he kind of looks up at us. And then he just goes back to eating the trash, right? <laughs> so Bill's like, we got to get closer. We got to do something. So we get really close. And now we're like, I'm like from here to you. I'm like really close to this bear. And uh, we're close and we, we've tried to make ourselves seem big. And we just go, bear, you got to go. You can't stay down here anymore. You got to go somewhere else. You got to find food in a different spot. You can't stay here. You're like, and uh, the bear, you guys, I'm not kidding. He goes back on two legs and he goes, it's like this loud, I felt like I could feel its breath, you know? So boom, like that, I turn around and I sprint down the Ponderosa deck into the Ponderosa Lodge. I shut the door and I lock it, right? And uh, as soon as I lock the door, I look through the window and on the other side, I see the face of my wife who I had uh, pushed out of the way and ran down the deck, and, in, and I've now I've locked her out there with the bear. So I was like, uh, not my finest moment. I unlocked the door, and I let her in, you know. Wasn't really my bravest time, you know. It wasn't like a moment I was really proud of. But it's amazing 
what fear will do to us, even in those moments where we're with somebody we love. If you'd ask me, like, hey, would you, would you die to protect your wife from a bear? I'd be like, yeah. But when a bear actually growled at me, I didn't even remember I was married, you know? <laughs> like, I was out of there. I was gone. On the night of the resurrection of Jesus, look at this. This is John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of Easter day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I want you to get this picture. On Resurrection Sunday, the disciples are huddled together in a little room upstairs with the door locked, scared of the Jews, scared of what's going to happen, right? They're huddled together, scared of the outsiders, right? Jesus doesn't unlock the door. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't even move the door out of the way. He just shows up in the room, and he says, shalom, right? Peace be with you. He says shalom to him. He invites them to be at peace. He invites them to think about why they're afraid. The people are huddled in this room because they're scared of what's going on on the outside. When he had said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them a second time, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In essence, what Jesus does is he shows up in this locked room with all these guys whose knees are knocking and they're scared of the people outside. And he kind of looks at them and says, what are you doing in here? Why are you all huddled together with a bunch of other people who think and act exactly like you? There's a world out there that needs to know I'm alive, and they're never going to hear it as long as you're hunkered down with the people just like you, locked behind a door. The reason I bring this up as we begin is that in the world in which we live today, there is a tendency for religious people and Christians in particular, I'll be critical of Christians because I am one, there's a tendency for Christians to huddle together with people who think like them and who believe like them and who see the world the same way they do and to feel like anybody who isn't part of their little club is a bad person and an outsider and is trying to get them. And sometimes we lock ourselves behind these walls and we lock ourselves behind these doors and we're so nervous about what's going on in the evil world and all the people that are out to get us and all the people that are out to sink us. And it's those people that desperately need to know the truth of who Jesus is. And as long as we're hunkered together behind our locked doors, as long as we've closed ourselves off with a bunch of other people who look and think and talk like us, we're missing the point of what Jesus says to his disciples. What he says to them is, be at peace and get out of this locked room. Be at peace and get going. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Well, think for a second about the way the Father sent him. The Father sent him from his throne on heaven to humble himself, to come to the earth. Philippians 2 says he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus looks at these disciples who were scared of the Jews, and he says, what are we doing in this room behind these locked doors? I'm sending you the way the Father sent me. And what he's saying to them is, I'm sending you out to lay down your lives for the good of other people. It isn't that they shouldn't be afraid of the Jews, and it isn't that you shouldn't be afraid of some of the ideas and some of the people that are out in the world. Some of the people out in the world are mean, and some of them are cruel, and some of them are hateful. It isn't that you shouldn't be afraid of what could happen, but rather that you should stop trying to hold on to your own life and you should go out into the world the way Jesus came into the world. Does that make sense? Willing and ready to lay himself down 
for the good of other people. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We many times can have sort of an us versus them mentality as Christians. And there ends up being this sort of fear-mongering and tribalism and arrogance and judgmentalism and bias. Jesus ignores the locks and the doors and he calls them to peace. It's interesting how often we sort of think of people who don't think the way we do as our enemies. But I want to I remind you, Ponderosa 2022, Hume Lake, I want to remind you that atheists are not our enemies, and other religions are not our enemies, and nationalists are not our enemies, and racists and sexists and religious idiots are not our enemies, right? Those people are not our enemies. They might be the captives of our enemy, but those are human beings made in the image of God who desperately need to know the truth of who Christ is. We know who Christ is, and there's a whole world, people you go to school with, and people you play on teams with, and people that you work alongside, people in your neighborhoods, and they might think differently than you, but hear me again, other human beings are not your enemy. They might be the captives of your enemy, Satan. And all they need is to know the truth of who Jesus is so that the truth will set them free just like the truth has set you free. Does that make sense? We don't need to be at odds against the world. We don't need to be scared of the world. We don't need to be running from the world. What we need to be doing is unlocking the doors of our upstairs apartments and stepping out into a world that needs the truth that somebody shared with us. Jesus says to them, I'm sending you the same way I was sent. Then look at this, verse 22. As he said this to them, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's very cool that Jesus looks at them and he breathes on them, which is a little bit weird. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where somebody just sort of went huh, at you, right? But that's the picture. The picture is that Jesus breathes on them, and he's preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit a little bit yesterday, but if you have your Bible, just to remind you of this, in John chapter 14, verse 25, it says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm with you, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, Right? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In both of these passages, Jesus has already said to us that when he goes, he will give us his Holy Spirit. One of the fundamental truths that we believe as Christians is that when we put our faith in Christ, and there were several of you who put your faith in Christ for the first time last night, we believe that in the moment you put your faith in Christ that you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That means that you don't have to go somewhere to meet with God. You don't have to go somewhere to talk with God. What that means is that God lives within you, that the Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you and will guide and direct you as you go on the mission that Jesus has given to all of us. You see, in the same way that Jesus looks at these disciples on Easter night, locked in this upstairs room, and he says, what are you doing in this room? I'm sending you out. That's a message for all disciples. That's a message for all of us. We've all been sent, but we don't have to do it in our own strength. We don't have to do it in our own power. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow the Holy Spirit's direction, and that Spirit, the Spirit of God, lives within us who are believers. 
So he looks at them in John chapter 20. He breathes on them, which is a little weird. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that's kind of a weird statement, but in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I have one way in which to communicate my grace to the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God could have chosen to communicate his grace to the world any way he wanted. He could have taken over all the cloud formations. He could take over every television set on the planet. He could take over the jumbotron in Times Square. If God had wanted to get all the... Uh, you know, the kitties and the puppies to stand up and bark the message of the gospel. He could have done that, right? God has one vehicle, one vehicle for communicating his truth to the world. And you know what the vehicle is? It's you and me. Jesus is, in essence, here in the upper room says to them, where you take forgiveness, forgiveness will go. And if you don't take forgiveness, they won't hear about it. Where you take it, it'll go. And if you don't take it, they won't hear it. Because we have been appointed to be his ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I have been called to be ambassadors. We've been called to be ambassadors of Christ, which means we have the opportunity of going into our schools and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our families and revealing Christ. The way your friends and coworkers and neighbors and school friends, all those people, the way they're going to first learn who Jesus is is by meeting you, and you will reflect Christ. You will reveal him. The problem for many of us is that the way we reflect Christ isn't always very good. In fact, sometimes we mar the image of Christ. I remember one time when, I, when my kids were smaller, my wife called me and she said, uh, you need to come home from work right now. There's something weird going on. And I was like, mm, okay, I don't, I don't know what that means exactly. But so I went home and turns out uh, my daughter and my son, Lily and Will, who some of you have met, uh, my daughter, they, they were both just little ones and uh, they were playing a game in the backyard. My wife was like washing dishes and she looks out the window and she sees them in the backyard, and my daughter, Lily, has gotten our big sort of family Bible, right? The big old Bible, and she's chasing Will around the backyard. She's chasing him around the backyard, and she's trying to hit him with the Bible, and when she hits him with the Bible, she goes, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you know? And my wife's like, what? You know? So my wife goes into the backyard, and she breaks it up, you know, and she's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you hitting your brother? And why are you hitting your brother with the Bible? That's terrible. We don't hit each other, and we definitely don't hit each other with the Bible. And why were you saying to him he's going to hell? What a terrible thing to say to your brother. Never say that to him again, you know? And my kids, they both kind of looked confused. They didn't really know why she was so upset. And they looked at my wife, and they were like, we don't know why you're mad. Like, we were just playing mean Jesus. <laughs> my wife's like, mean Jesus? That's not a game, right? There's no such game as mean Jesus. Knock it off. So she called me, right? Now I came home and I talked to them about it and whatever. And we kind of, I mean, we sort of worked it out. I don't, they may still play that for all I know. I don't have any idea. <laughs> but as I thought about it more, you guys, it, it occurred to me that, you know, like, I love living in the city where I'm at. I like to spend a lot of time in local businesses and restaurants and, and I like to get to know my neighbors and it's interesting, like, when I, when I can be having, like, a great conversation with somebody, and then they ask me what I do for a living, right? 
And when I tell people that I'm a pastor, there's like a weird thing that changes in their face. Like their, their, their posture changes, their, their approach to me changes. I can see them kind of glaze over when they hear I work at a church. And you want to know why that happens? Because when I tell people that I'm a Christian or when I tell people that I work at a church, you know what they imagine? You know who they imagine I work for? Mean Jesus. Most people in the world, when you tell them you're a Christian, they imagine that what that means is you're going to start chasing them around with the Bible and telling them they're going to hell. And what's weird about that, what's weird about the fact that the world imagines this character of mean Jesus, what's weird about it is that mean Jesus isn't in the pages of the Bible at all. You read it cover to cover, there is no place where you find mean Jesus. He's not in there. So why is it that the world imagines mean Jesus? You want to know why they imagine mean Jesus? Not because he's revealed that way in scripture, but because we have revealed him like that in culture. His followers have given the world the impression that what we're interested in is chasing down sinners with a big Bible and making sure they know they're condemned. But that isn't the heart of Jesus. Remember the woman in John 8? We looked at it a couple of nights ago. The woman who comes to Jesus, she's caught in adultery. And all these other people, they want to do mean Jesus, right? They're looking for mean Jesus. Hit her with the Bible and send her to hell. And Jesus goes, hey, whichever one of you is without sin can throw the first stone. And remember, what he's pointing at is that all of us are busted. Jesus reveals compassion. He does tell her she needs to change her life, but he doesn't do it in a judgy way. He does it in a loving way. He, in essence, looks at her and says, you were created for so much more than this. Go and live in alignment with your created purpose, right? It's a gesture of love, not a gesture of judgment. You and I have been appointed to be his ambassadors. He says to the first disciples, get out of this locked room. Stop being afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You need to go out and tell people I'm alive. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And that might feel daunting to you, right? It might feel daunting to you. You might feel overwhelmed because you might feel limited in capacity or maybe you feel embarrassed about things you've done in the past. So I want you to flip with me to John 21. We're going to finish here at the end of the book. In John chapter 21, Jesus meets with his disciples. After he's risen from the dead, he sends them back to Galilee. Remember, Galilee is where he first met them. That's where he called them to be disciples in the first place. Most of them, they were fishermen. And the guys, the disciples after his resurrection have returned to fishing and they're out on the water on one particular morning. It says this in John 21 verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. This is the resurrected Jesus, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, I imagine they said it like that because if you've ever been fishing and you haven't caught anything, that's how you feel. No, right? He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. It's very similar to a miracle that he performed when he first met them. So they cast the net on the other side and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, if you know the story of Peter, and we only touched it briefly the other night, you know that Jesus had looked at Peter and he'd said, hey, Pete, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was like, nope, not me. Peter never denies Jesus. These other knuckleheads, they might deny you, but Peter is with you forever. I'd rather die, you know? And Jesus is like, ah, I wish you hadn't said that because you're definitely going to deny me. And then after Jesus is arrested, it's just like Jesus said, Peter denies him three separate times. So here on the Sea of Galilee... They see this man standing on the shore, and the man standing on the shore says, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no. And he goes, throw the net on the other side. And they do, and then the net's full of fish. And John, 
looks at Peter and says, that's not just a nosy dude on the beach, that's the Lord. And then it tells us that Peter grabs his jacket and he flings himself into the water. Now, I'm guessing that based on how some of you may feel about yourself, your assumption is that he flings himself into the water on the far side of the boat and starts to swim to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from Jesus, right? Because maybe Peter feels embarrassed or maybe Peter feels ashamed that he made all of these pronouncements about himself and his own arrogance and pride. He said he would never fail and yet Jesus called it and he did fail and he failed in a massive way. You might imagine that Peter would fling himself into the water to get away from Jesus in his humiliation and I would guess that there are some of you sitting in the room here tonight who feel embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated and guilt-ridden because of things that you've done that were stupid, things that you did that are a byproduct of your brokenness, things you regret. And maybe if I were to say to you, hey, Jesus is in the room, you'd be like, I got to get out of here because I'm a mess. But what I want you to see in John chapter 21 is that when John, oh, excuse me, when John tells Peter that Jesus is on the beach, Peter doesn't jump in the water to swim away. Peter grabs his coat and flings himself in the water to swim toward Jesus. I want to encourage you tonight, if you're the kind of person sitting here who feels guilty and ashamed and embarrassed or whatever that is, either because of things you've done or things people have said to you, maybe because of a false narrative that somebody else has put into your life, don't fling yourself away from Jesus. Rush as fast as you can to him. Because he's gracious. He's a God of truth, as we already talked to, uh, talked about, but he's not only a God of truth, he's a God of grace and truth, John 1 says, right? So Peter flings himself in the water and uh, heads toward the beach, right? And then it says uh, in verse 7, that disciple whom, Peter, uh, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. Here's the part I really want you to see. This, this blows my mind, right? When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. This is really interesting. What we see here in John 21 is that Jesus cooks breakfast for the disciples. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second, like, if Jesus is cooking breakfast, mwah, how good is that breakfast, right? Like, that's got to be a great breakfast. And it's interesting that Jesus already has fish. Like, I don't know exactly how Jesus got those fish. It doesn't tell us. But I imagine that because he's Jesus, he just takes his skillet down to the water line and says, like, Hey, fish, it's me, Jesus. And they're like, okay, Jesus. And they jump into the skillet. I don't know, right? So he's got some fish and he's cooking them. And then the disciples come in with their boat. And Jesus says, hey, bring some of the fish that you have and put them here on the fire. I just want you to do a thought exercise with me for a second. Why does Jesus do that? He doesn't need their fish. He doesn't need their fish. If he'd wanted more fish, he could have caught more, or he could have, I, I don't, maybe he just like, you know, like jesus them into existence. I have no idea, right? If he'd wanted more fish, he could, have, he could have manifested more fish. He's the creator of all things. He has all power. He's risen from the dead, for goodness sakes. If he needed more fish, he could have had them. Why does he look at the disciples and say, bring some of yours and add them to the fire? Here's the answer. In my opinion, it isn't that Jesus needs more fish, but that he wants his disciples to have the joy of participating in what he's already cooking. He wants the disciples to have a part in what he's already doing. He's there cooking breakfast, and he says, bring some of what you got and add it in here. Let's do this work together. He doesn't need them. He could have cooked the breakfast on his own. He doesn't need their supplies, but he invites them to participate. 
And here's one more interesting thing to think about. The fish that those guys bring and put on the fire, they only have because Jesus filled their nets first. So everything that they bring out of the net and add to the fire, now they're participating with Jesus in the ongoing cooking of breakfast, but what they've added, they've only added the things that he gave them in the first place. If he hadn't filled their net, they wouldn't have had anything to add to the breakfast. Do you see the way this works? Here's why it matters. Everybody in this room have different gifts. You're all wired different, and that's part of the beauty of humanity. It's part of the beauty of creation. There isn't anybody in the room who's exactly the same. God has made you unique. He's made you beautiful. You are just as much in the image of God as everybody else in the room and everybody else on the planet. He's made you unique and special, and you are designed to fit into the body of Christ. Not because God needs us, but because he wants us to know the joy of participating in what he's doing. He invites us to add whatever we've got. If you're good at sports, if you're good at math, if you're good at marching band, if you're good at video games, if you're good, I don't know what your thing is. We've all got different stuff. But God made you the way he made you, and he put certain kinds of fish in your net so that you could have the joy of bringing that particular fish to his fire and cooking breakfast with him. Does that make sense? Everybody in the room has a part to play. Everybody in the room who's a follower of Jesus has a unique role in the kingdom of God that is different than mine. Not everybody can do this thing I'm doing. Some of you probably could, and some of you will do it, and some of you will do it better than I do, right? But not everybody's meant to be a camp speaker or a preacher or whatever. We're different. That's beautiful and awesome. Embrace it. What kind of fish has God put in your net? Bring those and put them on the fire. He says, what are you doing in this room locked in here with a bunch of other people who look and think like you? Unlock the doors. Get out in the streets. I'm sending you like my father sent me. Go. Go. And share the gospel. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Go. Each and every one of you brings something different. Jesus invites them to participate. He invites us to participate as his ambassadors. At the end of John chapter 21, Jesus steps away from breakfast and he has a conversation with Peter that goes like this, looking in verse 15. He says, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved or hurt because Jesus keeps asking the same question. Now, it's, it's not coincidental that Peter had denied him three times and Jesus asked this question three times. It's not coincidental that the, the, the word for love changes here. I don't want to get in the weeds on that with you right now. What I want you to see is that it hurts Peter's feelings that Jesus keeps asking the same question. Jesus goes, do you love me? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah. Okay, tend to my lambs. Third time, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter's like, why do we keep going over the same ground? I already said it, right? So here's Peter's response. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And so Peter says to him, this is in verse 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him for the last time, feed my sheep. I think... I think the reason Jesus asked three times, in addition to sort of the emphasis on the denial, is that he wants Peter to remember what Peter has said here. What Peter has said is, Jesus knows everything. Jesus, you know everything. Why do you keep asking me the same thing? You know I love you. And Jesus goes, right. I know you love me. Yeah, yeah, you screwed up back there when you denied me a couple of times, but I know you love me, so let's get going. Let's not get hung up on this anymore, right? Listen to me, Ponderosa. 
Do you love Jesus? Don't answer that out loud. I want you to ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then listen to me. He knows it. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to make up for the mistakes you've made. You don't have to earn back his trust. You don't have to climb some sort of a mountain or do any kind of penance. Do you love him? He knows you do. Let it be enough. Let it be enough that you love him and he knows everything. And then get past yourself and get to work being his ambassador. It's a great gift. He finally says this to John. He says, when you were young, this is verse 18, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I want to finish with this. He looks, at, he looks at Peter and he says, hey, you know what? When you were a younger guy, you got up in the morning, you put on the clothes you wanted to put on, and you went wherever you wanted to go. But I'm going to tell you, the way you're going to die is there's a day coming when you get older that you're going to get up and somebody else is going to dress you and they're going to take you by the hand and they're going to take you places you don't want to go. And he's, at one level, he's indicating something very literal about the future of, of Peter. But in a broader sense, what he's saying to Peter is true for every follower of Jesus. That before you were a follower of Jesus, before you were a follower of Jesus, you got up every day and you went where you wanted to go and you wore what you wanted to wear and you said what you wanted to say and you did what you wanted to do. But once you've given your life to Jesus, everything changes. On the other side of putting your faith in Christ, you now have recognized that Jesus is the king of the universe and so it's no longer about what you want to wear, what you want to say, or what you want to go. The life of a disciple, and not just the way Peter will die, but the way that every disciple will die. And I don't just mean when your heart stops beating, I mean tonight and tomorrow and when you go back to your cities, the way that all of us are called to die is to hold out our hand and let the Holy Spirit lead us to a place we didn't choose to do things we didn't pick and say things that he put on our heart to say to his audience. The, the role of an ambassador is to take the king's message to the king's audience, right? So what he's saying to Peter is true for us too. How, how do we live this life? Where do we go from here? Well, he's sending us like he sent like he himself was sent. He's empowered us by his Holy Spirit. He's forgiven us. He's invited us to bring some of the fish he put in our net, and all those fish are different, and to add them to the fire just so that we can experience the joy of cooking something up with Jesus. And he invites us to live this life where we relinquish our own self-direction and we start to go to the places where God directs us to go, where it ceases to be about what we want and what we want to do, and it becomes about what he has called us to. When my son Hank was being potty trained, uh, he had like a 40-second like timer. Uh, what I mean by that is when he was like three years old, maybe two, well, about three, uh, he would say, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. And it didn't mean like in the next half an hour I could use a restroom. He meant like I got to go to the bathroom right now. So we're in the Fresno airport one time. We're getting ready to fly to see some family. And uh, my son, Hank, he, he's this little guy. He goes, uh, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, ah! So I, th I threw whatever I had in my hands. I don't even remember what I was holding. But I scoop up my kid, and now I'm running through the Fresno airport trying to get to the bathroom before there's a disaster. You know what I'm saying? And people are looking at us kind of weird, like the security guard unsnaps his gun because technically at that point, Hank is a chemical weapon, right? So I'm running through the airport. I'm holding my kid. I find the men's restroom. I get inside. I fling open the door. I sit down my kid. I pull down his pants. And uh, I don't, I don't want to be too graphic, but like... The clock has run out, you know what I'm saying? So there's like, there is a mess. And, and again, not to gag you out, but like there's a mess on Hank. 
and a mess on his clothes and his shoes and on the floor and on me and my shoes and the bottom of my pants. Like, there is a mess, right? And there's a moment there, you guys, where, where I think to myself, like, I'm just going to put this kid in the trash. You know what I mean? Like, there's one of those big, like, dumpster things, and I think, like, I'm just going to, because I'm young, I can have more kids, you know? So, like, I'll just put this kid in the dumpster, and that'll be like a fixer-upper kid for p- families who maybe want an extra. And they'll be like, oh, somebody threw away a perfectly good kid or whatever. And I'm considering all of this, and then I look down at my son in all the mess and whatever, and he looks up at me, and he's, he's sobbing. He's so embarrassed. He's crying. And so I start to clean him up, right, in the Fresno airport. I start to clean him up, and, and I remember the next memory I have is like, I'm standing at the bank of sinks in the Fresno airport, and I'm cleaning poop out of these tiny underpants, right? And I see my reflection in the mirror, and I think, like, when did this become my life, you know? <laughs> like, when did I become the guy that does this disgusting job? And, uh, but I got him all cleaned up, and we made our flight and whatever. I just want to illustrate something for you here. Hank didn't thank me that day. And there's not going to be a day in the future when Hank's going to call me up and be like, Dad, do you remember that day in the Fresno airport when you cleaned me up? That was so inspirational, I've decided to become a missionary. You know, like he's, that day's never coming, right? Hank doesn't even remember that. There were no other parents in the bathroom that day. There was no one like, you, sir, are an excellent father. You know, like, we're calling Oprah Winfrey to do a special or whatever, like. There was no payoff for me. Like, I got nothing out of that. I did this disgusting job, and there was nothing in it for me. And you might be sitting here tonight thinking, why should I follow Jesus to a place I don't want to go? Be led to a thing I didn't ask for. Why, why would I lay down my life? Why would I want to come out of the, the locked room where I feel safe with other people who think and talk just like me and go out into a world where people might hate me? Why would I want to be sent like Jesus? Because you're, you're having a hard time figuring out what the payoff is. Well, listen, and I don't want to upset you, But the payoff of the faithful Christian life is not for you. The payoff of the faithful Christian life is for Jesus. It's glory to God. There isn't isn't a payoff for you. Yeah, you'll get to go to heaven, and yes, you have a relationship with God. There There are some great perks, I'll give you that. But the payoff of a Christian life is that God is glorified with our life and breath. That's the payoff. So, So why would you do this hard thing even though there's no payoff for you? Why did I do that thing for Hank? There was no reward. He didn't thank me. There was nobody paying attention. Why did I do that gross job? Well, there's one other reason we'll do hard things. We'll do hard things for a payoff, right? We'll do hard things for a paycheck or when somebody will compensate us. There's one other scenario in which you and I will make sacrifices and do disgusting and hard work. And you know what that other scenario is? Why did I do that thing for him? Because I love that kid. I did that gross job because I love that kid. And as the last thing I say to you this year in 2020... 2022, sorry. We've all lost time, right? In 2022, here's the last thing I want to say to you. The motivator for following Jesus now is not what you get out of it. The motivator for following Jesus is how much you love him and how much you love everybody else. Because those people that sometimes feel like your enemies, those people who sometimes other people may have told you you need to be scared of, they're just like you. They're made in the same God's image. They are loved by God the same way you are, and they desperately need an ambassador who will love them so much that he'll hold out his hand, she'll hold out her hand and be led to be an ambassador of Christ, to reveal Christ even when it's hard. We do hard things if there's enough love in the equation. So when you struggle to figure out how to live for Jesus tomorrow and the day after, don't look at the payoff. Look at your love. Look at your love for Christ and your love for others. That's why Jesus, when he's asked what's most important, will say, love God, love other people. You get those two right, 
everything else takes care of itself. I'm telling you, love God, love other people, and all of the rest of it will square. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for these students. Thanks for a great week at Hume Lake. Thank you for their attentiveness and their willingness to process some complex things and to do so with joy and peace. I pray that this last message about being your ambassadors would settle on their hearts and would compel them to live the truth of the life of the church day in and day out as your ambassadors. We wouldn't hunker down, but that we'd unlock the doors and we'd head out into the streets and we would declare the truth of the Jesus who saved us that the world may know, that they may know Christ and believe in his name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.